0: listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 80, Animals. Today's proverb is unattributed. I'll read it twice. God works in mysterious ways. Once more. God works in mysterious ways. Of course, God also works in non-mysterious ways. God has vouched to meet us in predictable, reliable ways. He meets us in the scriptures. He meets us in sacraments. He meets us at holy times and holy places. He is closer to us at Christmas than he is at other times which is one of those reasons why Christmas is special it's unusual and these are all ways that we have come to rely on proximity to God the work of God in standard and conventional ways or his own conventions at least and yet God does whatever he wants to do, as scripture shows us over and over again. God shows up in scripture, he shows up in sacraments, he shows up in holy things, but he also shows up in the mouths of donkeys. He shows up in shadows, he shows up in napkins we see in the book of Acts. Sometimes he shows up in an earthquake and sometimes he doesn't show up in an earthquake. And so while we've come to expect to meet God and draw close to him in certain reliable conventional ways, there's no telling when he'll show up. If we cannot allow for God to work in mysterious ways, we lose our minds by trying to incorporate what is unaccountable into our own dogma. If we demand that everything be systematized, our systems will not be able to bear the weight. Every system... Even a theological system has its limits. And if you can't see where the limits to a system are, you will break that system. So when I say God works in mysterious ways, I don't mean God works in just unusual ways. But that God works in ways that are beyond our imagination. And as opposed to trying to turn the mysterious and unaccountable ways of God into accountable ways. We have to acknowledge from time to time that we have seen something or heard something or experienced something that is ineffable. That is beyond a simple elucidation. Many years ago, while my wife and I were still dating, we took a trip to Aberdeen, Washington, birthplace of Kurt Cobain. When you drive into Aberdeen, Washington, in the sign outside the city that sort of greets you, welcome to Aberdeen, Washington, come as you are. That's what it says. And we had taken a trip to Aberdeen because my wife's sister, my wife's sister's boyfriend grew up in Aberdeen. And we were taking this trip together, my wife, her sister, her boyfriend, back before any of us were engaged or married. And we were going to spend a few days in Aberdeen, which is near the water. I think on the second day we were in Aberdeen, my wife's sister, now my sister-in-law, and the man who became her husband, wanted to go down and surf. And it was cold. Uh, Cold enough that they had to wear wetsuits. And if you've been to Aberdeen, it's not hard to understand why Kurt Cobain wrote the sort of music that he did, if you've actually been to the place where he grew up. When we were there, at least, it was this gray, overcast day, probably October. Cold. Cold maybe 50, 55. We were wearing coats. We go down to the beach, and there was a lot of fog down by the beach and the visibility wasn't great you could see maybe 50 yards down the beach maybe less and I was not up for surfing my wife not up for surfing I say not up for surfing like I am up for surfing sometimes not up for surfing then nor today not a surfer so my sister-in-law and her boyfriend later her husband surf while Paula and I take a walk down the beach and the beach was sort of lovely even though Aberdeen is not the most heartening city i've ever been to the beach was sort of lovely and and it was romantic the fog the sound of the surf so my wife and i set out on this long walk down the beach. Nowhere to be, not in any hurry. The surfers were going to take, you know, the better part of the morning. And this was the morning. And the beach was more or less unoccupied. And it was hard to say that right off the bat, because the fog was so thick, you couldn't see that far. But it wasn't really beach weather. And yet we were on the beach, we were wearing our shoes and Walking, you know, down by, the, down by the water, but not in the water. And we walked for a long time. You know, we walked for 20 minutes, 30 minutes. I don't remember what the conversation was in the first part of the walk. But about 20 or 30 minutes into this walk, on a nearly unoccupied beach with low visibility because of the fog. We come across a bird sitting or kind of nestled in the sand on the beach. And this bird was alive and in bad shape. All of the feathers on its wings had been stripped off. I don't know how. It wasn't easy to, to read how all of this had come to be. But the bird had no feathers on its wings. It just had these two skeletons attached to its body. Little triangle skeletons attached to its body. And it had been sitting there for a long time. You could tell. That was feces all around it that the that the surf had kind of drawn away from its body it looked like it had been there for a few hours because it was kind of partially submerged in the sand and to see it to see this bedraggled bird a good-sized bird not like a sparrow but um you know the size of i don't know uh, might have been a you know a pound the bird might have weighed a pound it was a good-sized bird uh black it was wet from the surf but it wasn't getting hit by the surf at the time that we saw it and it looked disgusting it looked horrifying to see this this half skeleton half bird and we came to this thing and we stood in front of it and we gasped Because it was so horrific. And we looked around and there was no one there and it was disturbing. We couldn't figure out what to do. We could walk a mile down the beach, get in the car, go drive somewhere, get a towel, get a box, come back. But this bird was on the cusp of death. This was not a bird that could be saved. This, this bird looked like it had, you know, an hour left in its little bird life. And so we immediately sensed that there's nothing that we can do here. And we sort of talked it over. What do we do? Is it, should we try to save it? Can it be saved? And there was just no realistic way that this bird could be saved the thing would likely be dead by the time we got back from a store with a box and a towel and took it to I mean if you took this bird to the humane society you've got to imagine that they they would sort of take it and give you a consoling look and then just wait for it to die I mean it was really bad so we stand around this bird for five minutes and it was distressing But in the end, we just had to keep walking. So we left this bird there to die. So we keep walking on the beach. Romantic walk on the beach is over. (laughs) No more romantic walk on the beach. Not with what we'd just seen. And it was, I mean, where do you go from there? After you've seen this horrific vision, what do you talk about? As you're slowly moving away from this decaying bird clinging to life. You talk about the new Radiohead album? There was nothing to talk about, and so we just sort of walked in silence. For another five, ten minutes... And then we came across a, a. There was this large log sort of away from the sand, and we sat down and we talked. And it seemed like something had to be said. We couldn't not say anything. And while we're sitting there, while we were about to start talking, this dog runs past us, dog all alone on the beach. The dog is running in the direction of this bird. So we talk, and we talk about death. I try to say something consoling about the resurrection. I try to throw some theology into the mix. I don't know that any of this is really working, though. Because my wife was more disturbed by the bird than I was. And so it was more my place to do the comforting, or to try. But I did not know what to say. This seemed like such an unredeemable situation. And as we were sitting there talking, and I was trying to theologize the horror away this dog runs by, and as soon as that dog ran by, I knew that we were going to have to walk back in the direction we had come towards the car, and that that dog was going to be chewing on that bird when we got there, and it was it was just gonna be worse, so as I'm Trying to say something consoling, I'm also thinking, man, is there another way that we can get back to the car? Do we have to walk by this bird again? Do we have to see this thing again? And then I thought, maybe the dog is a gift. Maybe that dog is just going to run away with that bird. And the bird will be gone when we get there, and we won't even have to talk about it. And maybe the surf will have washed away every... Vestige of the bird. We can just forget that it ever happened. Never mention it again. So after failing to really console my wife, eventually the conversation's over and we stand up and we've got to walk back in the direction of the bird. And at this moment, I'm praying, God, Please don't let that bird be there. Just let it be gone. Maybe the, maybe it died in the last ten minutes, and the surf came and washed it away. Do not let, do not let that bird be there. So we walk back, and it's. I keep thinking, and the you know the fog is thick, and I, I can only see a few feet ahead. But I'm paying very close attention, lest we like trip over it or something. Please don't let it be there. And it takes forever. And I'm thinking it's gone. It's gone. It's a miracle. God works in mysterious ways. That bird is gone. But that bird is not gone. <laughs> and we come upon it again. And it's such a, a, a difficult, one of those difficult split-second decisions you have to make. Like, we both see the bird. And without deciding vocally, we both know, all right, we're going to stop and do this all over again. Because we can't just walk by it. There's some, there seems something even more crass about just walking by it. So we have to stop in front of this bird again. And it seems like when we we stand in front, silently stand in front of this bird again, that whatever happens this time has to be different than what happened before. Now, all of this is going on 16 years ago, this is 2005. And in 2005, the emergent church was still on the ascendant. Brian McLaren had just published A Generous Orthodoxy. People in their 20s wanted to believe that they were setting off into a sort of theological wild west, uncharted territory. Where our appreciation, not obedience, but appreciation of things like sacraments and liturgy can be played with. And we can sort of reimagine these things and stylize them however we choose. And isn't it so cool that we can take these old things and make them new? Isn't that what old things want? Don't they want a new twist? Isn't that what our primary responsibility to old things is? Change them so that they're kind of the same but really suit our needs? Well, that was the era. And you can see what I think of the era based on the way that I described it, but, I mean, at the age of 24, I was in the thick of that. In the previous year... I'd taken a road trip with my best friend in the world from Moscow, Idaho, to Portland, Oregon, where a friend of ours was getting married. And on the drive down, it's about six hours, this very good friend of mine tells me about a book he just read by Marilyn Robinson. And he described, and I'm recalling this later on the beach, he recalled this scene for me on this drive where some children baptized a bunch of feral kittens. I didn't read the book, but I was struck by this image of children baptizing kittens. Stayed with me. In that era, back in the era of the ascendance of the emergent church, baptizing kittens was exactly the sort of thing that just cut you right to the heart. Like, yes. You hear about some kids baptizing kittens and you're like, yes, sacraments, liturgy. Yes, baptizing kittens. That's what it's all about. (laughs) On that beach, I did not know what to do. We had to do something. But nothing seemed tenable. We could not carry this diseased bird, presumably. A mile back to the car. It was on the cusp of death, and so we, we stood there. And after standing there for a c- couple minutes silent. I walked a few feet down to the surf and I scooped up some water in my hands and I walked back to that bird with its two skeleton wings surrounded by its own feces on the cusp of death. And I held my hands over the bird and I said, bird... I baptize you into the new creation in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I dropped the water on the bird's head. And when the water touched the bird's head, it suddenly stood up on its legs and began beating its skeleton wings. And it was shocking. <laughs> thought this thing was on the cusp of death and it arose and it was it was sort of terrifying and sublime to see this thing beat its skeleton wings and then the bird began to walk around i was shocked i took off my coat and i began kind of moving the bird, like hustling the bird or shepherding it towards the surf. And the bird made it to the surf and swam away into the fog, gone. And my wife and I just stared. What just happened? That was not what I thought was going to happen. I was under the impression that I was going to baptize this bird and we were going to call it good. (laughs) We were just going to walk away. But the water did something to this bird. God works in mysterious ways. I cannot account for what happened there to this day. And what's more, at the age of 40, I would not do the same thing again. I would not baptize an animal. Which is to say, my own feelings about what I did on the beach that day are complicated because I know what I saw. But what I saw, and for lack of a better word, what worked, are not exactly compatible with what I believe. God works in mysterious ways. And as opposed to trying to incorporate those mysteries into a kind of system. I think it's best to just gaze at them in wonder and gratitude.